You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Well, here's where we are in the book of Esther. Esther is like a Hebrew soap opera with Persian subtitles. I mean, it's got it all, right? There's uh, powerful, rich, drunken men, beautiful women, corrupt politicians, and death on the horizon. If you're new to this series, let me catch you up. There is King Xerxes, the drunken, powerful, crazy king of the Persian Empire. He got rid of his first wife and had a contest to get a second wife. That's Esther. His right-hand man is a guy named Haman. Haman is a horrible human being. He loves, he craves power, attention, fame, glory. He wants everyone to bow down to him. He is second in command in the Persian Empire, and a decree is sent out by the king that everyone should bow down to Haman. And everyone does, except one guy named Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down, and Haman is enraged. He is incensed by this. He wants to kill Mordecai. But not only Mordecai, because he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, so all Jewish people, all of God's people are going to be killed because in Haman's mind, they're all just like Mordecai. So Haman goes to King Xerxes and basically pitches a revenue stream. Hey, let me commit genocide against an entire group of people. Uh, We'll plunder their possessions. I'll give you half. You don't have to lift a finger. Just say the word, okay? The king signs the decree. The date is set. Death is on the horizon for all of God's people. Esther finds out about this. And lo and behold, she too is one of God's people. She's not been a tremendously faithful, godly woman. She's been married to the king now for some five years. And no one knows, including her husband, that she's one of God's people. This means she hasn't been obeying the scriptures. She hasn't been tithing. She hasn't been uh, going to the public prayers. She hasn't been celebrating the feasts and festivals. She hasn't been, her diet has not been according to the Old Testament laws. It, It means that she's not been meeting with God's people or worshiping with God's people or studying the scriptures. Maybe that's been us from time to time. She would profess a faith that she doesn't possess. And certainly doesn't practice. So no one knows she's Jewish, including her husband. But now a death sentence has been set for Mordecai, her older cousin who adopted Esther when she was orphaned. A death sentence for Mordecai, but all of God's people, which means she too is now in danger. So at this dramatic point in the story, what's going to happen? Everything's sort of culminating to this moment. And the first question is, will all of God's people die? I mean, the date is set. The decree has been sent forth. We pick up our story in chapter 6 at the last verse, verse 14. We read this. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet 
Esther had prepared. So Esther, in hearing about the death sentence that had been ordered, she's now starting to practice her faith in God. She's growing in her faith. She is acting more godly. So if you've been hypocritical, if you've been compromised, it's not too late for you. What we see with Esther is God quickly blesses even simple obedience. She's decided she needs a way to use her power of influence that God has allowed her to be queen to save her people. So she took a risk with her life. We read in a previous chapter that she went into the king's presence uninvited, which itself could be a death sentence. She risked her own life and said, if I perish, I perish. The king welcomed her. And he asked her, what is it that you want? She's, re- she's waiting for the right opportunity to reveal what is happening. That she is Jewish And she wants to spare all of God's people. So she throws a banquet and invites the king and his right-hand man, Haman, her enemy. You know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And over the course of dinner, the king again asks, what is it that you want? She says, well, attend another party. She realizes it's not yet time, so she throws another banquet. Well, in attendance at this second banquet is again the king and Haman. The plot thickens, the tension rises, and with every passing minute, death is coming closer to God's people. And her adoptive father, Mordecai, is on the brink of being crucified, impaled on a 70-foot high cross that Haman has made So it would be a public spectacle to put Haman on that, the one guy who wouldn't bow down so that Haman is refused complete glory. Esther is patient. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not slow, he's patient. Here, Esther is not slow. She's patient. Now chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine, that's a surprise, isn't it? (laughs) That's all they did. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold. I'll get to the rest of that in just a second. What she says is, Here's what I want. I want to not be murdered. He didn't see that coming. I'm sure he was thinking, okay, she's going to ask for some lavish gift, a nice holiday. What is it you want? I want to not be murdered. 
She continues, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. She knows he's been drinking quite a bit, so she wants to make sure he doesn't miss this. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, Esther is not a woman who makes a lot of requests, and she is now presenting this request as this is very, very important, so important that it's even a greater request than a whole group of people being enslaved. So she's got the king's attention. She's got our attention. What could be bigger crisis than the enslavement of an entire people? Sometimes among God's people, there's no sense of timing. There's no sense of urgency. It's often because we are absolutely, continually, selfishly consumed with our own affairs. Esther's eyes are up, not, not inward. She's not looking at the chance that she may die and that she may suffer alone. She's looking at the fate of all in a situation that is set before them. So, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? The king is angry because an assault on the queen is an assault on the king. It's not that he's particularly loving his wife. We read before that even though they live in the same palace, sometimes they are separated as much as 30 days because he's too busy with the harem. So King Xerxes doesn't love his wife, doesn't cherish his wife. He's not really trying to protect her. But she is the queen. She is an extension of his kingship. And somebody who would plot against her is undermining him. So it's kind of back to his pride, his dignity, his self-image, his self-interest. Who did this? Where are they? Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. She's pointing the finger. He's standing right there. Bad day for Haman, right? You thought you were just going to dinner with the king and queen. Posting it on social media. Hey, going to the dinner with king and queen yet again. I'll post pictures later. Stay tuned. He shows up. What? Someone, someone's trying to kill the queen? Who? Me? He didn't know she was Jewish. That tells us a lot about the king as well because he didn't know his wife very well. Like, let's say you've been married five years. You come home from work and, and your wife's in the kitchen and you say, hey, what are you doing? I'm making dinner. What are we having? Asian. Asian? Why Asian? I'm Asian. You're Asian? When did, when did you become Asian? <laughs> I've always been Asian. Not the most attentive husband, right? So Xerxes and, and Esther, they've not had a lot of deep conversations like who your God is. She's not declared it. Here's what she does. She comes out of hiding about her faith. Haman wants to kill all of God's people. She raises her hand and says, well, guess what? That's me too. She finally identifies herself with God's people. She could have kept quiet about her relationship with God. 
She could have walked away from the entire crisis. Oh, they're going to die? Well, nobody knows I'm one of them. So if I just keep my relationship with God quiet and not public, then, then you know what? I, I won't have to suffer. I won't be ridiculed. I won't be murdered. But let me tell you, it's a great privilege and honor to be one of God's people. And I would encourage us all to not be yet another selfish, modern, individualistic, consumer Christian who really doesn't care about God's people, only wants to use them for convenience and criticize them when certain services aren't completed and certain goods aren't provided. Instead, look at Esther's life now. She has nothing to gain by identifying herself with God's people. There's no reward, there's no benefit for adding her name to the list of those who are about to be murdered. Yet she's counting it a great privilege to be numbered among God's people, to be part of God's family. And here's something we need to see in her brave, noble, godly actions. We need to see that divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. Usually those two things are seen as different theological perspectives. That God's sovereignty, that is that, that he's in charge, he's in control, that God will take care of it. God will work it all out. But others will look at the scripture passage and say, well, you need to speak. You need to give and serve and you need to try and help and care. In other words, you need to do your part. The truth is, Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two pedals on a bike. They do work together. You do your part, God is certainly going to do his part. You give what he's asked you to give, and he'll make up the difference. You show up, that's good. God's already going to be there. You see, God is at work in the story of Esther, and part of his work is through Esther. She's working with God. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Imagine you're Haman. Second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. He was going to have an entire population wiped out. And he just found out that includes the queen. Yeah, he's terrified. Have you been there in a way? Your sin, your pride, your foolish mistakes, you can't blame anyone else, it's you. You've gotten yourself into that situation. Maybe you're obsessed by it, you can't sleep at night, you're frustrated, overwhelmed, you're panicked, everyone can see it on your face. What can you do about it? Repent to God and ask forgiveness for those you've harmed. Well, Haman doesn't know God, and he doesn't truly understand forgiveness. Next verse. The king got up in a rage, left his wine. Now you know he's angry, right? <laughs> he left his wine and went outside in the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. He could see it on the king's face. Who is this man who wants to destroy my, my wife? <laughs> That's the man. 
The king doesn't say a word to Haman. And Haman saw the furious wrath in the eyes of the king and he knew he was a dead man. So the king goes out in the garden to collect his thoughts. What am I going to do? I've got my wife. I've got my second-hand man. And I'm the one who signed the decree killing all of those people. I didn't know my wife was numbered among them. So Xerxes' own sin is tearing away at him. And what about Esther? You know she's got to be concerned. Perhaps she will be divorced like what happened to his first wife, Vashti, when things just got a little too complicated for the king. Maybe the king will be angry with her. You didn't tell me who your God was. It's like I don't even know you. You, You've tricked me. You lied to me. What's going to happen to her? She doesn't know. And then Haman, he's gotten himself into this position. Because he was so furious that one man refused to fall at his feet. And now in a great reversal of irony, he throws himself at the feet of one of God's people. And not just that, a woman, which in that culture would have been highly impractical. This once proud Haman is now at the feet of a godly woman, one of God's children. What's the king going to do? Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Here's what happens. He walks back in. Queen Esther is on the couch. Haman throws himself at her mercy, but the king declares, He's trying to assault my wife. Do you really think that's true? Do you think at this moment, Haman is thinking, romance. (laughs) There's no better time in the story for this to pop up, for me to seduce the king's wife and start a relationship. Hardly. But here's another irony. Haman has lied about God's people so he could kill them all. And now the king is going to lie about him so he can kill him. It's a horrible thing that the king is doing. But again, it's something that you and I is not too foreign to us. All of us, when we get ourselves into bad situations, totally of our own doing, of our own sin, rather than repent, well, they're unrepentant. Theirs is a culture that is based on unrepentance. They had something called the law of the Medes and Persians, meaning when the king makes a decree, it is irreversible. That means the king will never say, I was wrong. Some of us live like little kings and queens with a law of Medes and Persians in place, and we'll never repent. We'll never say we're wrong. That's exactly what the king does. Well, let's see, Haman has my authority. I gave him permission and now he's put my wife at risk, which threatens my glory. And he didn't sexually assault her, but close enough. I mean, I'm the king and and what am I going to do? I'm going to twist certain facts and and I'm going to put them together in a way so that it's not totally true. 
but I'm going to retell the story and I'm going to call Haman a, a, a sexual assaulter and, and an evildoer who threw himself at the queen. Others will believe it and I can kill Haman and take the blood off my hands and put it on him. We do it. That's what happens for you and me when we are unrepentant and we rewrite history and we retell the story so that it's not true. Close to it, maybe, but it's not true. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, hey, a pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits, that 75-foot pole, remember, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Remember, he got your assassination plot uncovered there, king. The king said of Haman, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury subsided. How many of you are at one end of the spectrum where you're really bothered by this? And you're thinking... You know, Haman's a man that we don't really know much about. We don't know his upbringing, his family. Was he mistreated? Was he abused? Was he unloved? Was there any excusable uh, problem? Maybe something others had done to him, we don't know. Maybe if we had more insight and information, we could interpret Haman in light of his circumstances. Yeah, there's a lot of darkness, but maybe deep down there's some good. So I'm not sure that he should have suffered this fate. I mean, it seems too much, too harsh, too intense. I certainly don't want to hear. That's the way God treats people. Or how many of you are on the other end of the spectrum and you're like, he got crucified in his yard? That's awesome. I wish more people would get crucified in the yard. I think all the bad people and evildoers should be suffering this kind of fate. And I'm really glad that's the way it ended for Haman because you know what? I knew where the story was going. And so that's why I was coming here. See, what happens is we love it when those evil people get it, but we're not evil, so we shouldn't get it. We can see their sin more clearly than we can see our own. We can see their guilt more than our own. We can trust the sentencing against them more than against us. It's called hypocrisy and self-righteousness, and it is the preferred diet of those who are religious. And some of you, if you're not at one of those extreme ends, then you're maybe some flat out confused. You're like, I, I kind of I feel both right now. I, I think it's good that God's people were saved. It's good that Haman was dealt with. It's good that they're going to live. But being crucified in your yard in front of your family, that's a bit much. I, I'm confused. I, I'm glad that, that the results are the way they turn out, but I'm, I'm kind of grieved by the process. I'm sitting on a little throne wondering what I would do if I were God. And, and maybe I'd do a little bit better job of it than, than God. I, I'm second guessing that he has allowed this to play out this way. Let me say this. In one day, two things happened. Condemnation and salvation. 
In one day, Haman was condemned, but there was salvation for all of God's people. And they were all saved because Esther identified herself with her people. And once again, the storyline is preparing us for the coming of the Messiah. This is a portrait and a picture of the great King of Kings, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, against whom we have sinned, whose wrath burns against us. And yet he got off of his throne, comes into history as one of God's people, the same race, the same people group that Haman wanted to get rid of. And unlike Esther, he lives without sin. Esther is not a perfect savior. Jesus is. Because Jesus identifies with his people, all God's people are saved. The story is amazing, but imagine this. Imagine the moment when King Xerxes looked at Haman and said, take this man and and crucify him now. Imagine if at that moment, Esther walked over to Haman and said, I love you, I forgive you. And then she turns to Xerxes and says, I will die in his place. Crucify me for him, my enemy, so he can become one of God's people. That would be beyond belief. But that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. We all are Haman. We either die for our sin, a forever death, or Jesus dies for it. Either the wrath of the true king is abated through our eternal punishment or the wrath of the true king is abated through the punishment that Jesus bore. See, the Lord Jesus identified himself with you and me and he did the one thing that no one else could do. He took our place. In one day, these two things happened. Jesus was condemned And we receive salvation. Do you know that? Have you received the salvation Jesus offers? Do you know that God wants a personal relationship with you? In Romans 5, 8, the Apostle Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not, hey, once you got your act together, once you finally got cleaned up, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. We must trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What does that look like? How do we do that? What does that mean? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth... That Jesus is Lord. In other words, you say it publicly. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
He is no longer dead on the cross. He is alive and reigning and ruling. If you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.